<clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. <clears throat> Next week, Lord willing, we will be uh, starting a sermon series in 2 Samuel. Um, I preached in 1 Samuel several years ago, uh, and so uh, my goal this morning is to preach one sermon in an overview of 1 Samuel uh, to set the stage for next week as we open to 2 Samuel. <clears throat> Let me tell you a story. Um, about 11 years ago, the Lord called me here to start preaching at Union Lake, and uh, <clears throat> there was a, a very old gentleman that was part of our church family back then, sat way in the back in the middle, and uh, he reached even to the age of 100. And, uh, and in those early days, I didn't know how long I was going to be here at Union Lake. I came under the understanding that I was just going to fill the pulpit for a while. So I, uh, I, I believe I, I started preaching in Second Peter, and then I started thinking to myself, boy, if, if I'm only going to be here for a short period of time, I need to, I want to, I want to be faithful and, and preach all of the scriptures as much as I can. So the next thing I went to was I thought, well, let's go to the Old Testament. So I went to Genesis, and I preached the story of Abraham. And, uh, and after a few weeks of preaching Abraham's story uh, from Genesis, this, this man, as I greeted him before service start, uh, you know, I, I shook his hand. He kind of pulled, pulled me into himself, you know. And uh, I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, the guy that I'm referring to. A few of you do. Um, and he said to me, he said, we need to get to the other end of the Bible. All these people are dead. What can we learn from them? That was the question that was, that was posed to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, what can we learn from them? What's the answer to that man's question? That's, that's, that's what I want you to think about this morning. Um, because I'm, as I said, I, I've preached 1 Samuel, and I'm about to go back to another ancient text in 2 Samuel uh, next week. So what's the answer uh, to that guy's question? Well, I thought about it. And these are the three reasons I would put to you. You could probably come up with some others. The first reason is that all of the Bible, including the oldest parts, were written with us in mind. Not only us but with us in mind. Hear the testimony of Paul in Romans 15, verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel was written long ago, but with us in mind, so that we might have hope and encouragement. Second, <clears throat> all Scripture... All of it, even the oldest of the books of the Bible. All of them speak of the salvation and faith concerning Jesus Christ. There's a lot of places I could go to. I could, I could preach a whole sermon on this. But just listen to Paul's words to Timothy. Uh, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 14 through 17. Not the whole thing. I'm going to give you a little excerpt. 2 Timothy 3, 14. Paul says to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What are those sacred writings? Those are the Old Testament books, friends. And he says this, Paul says this about those Old Testament books, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And oh, by the way, they're valuable in every which way, as, as Paul continues to write there. They're, they're profitable in, in, in every way. So first, why do we look at these Old Testament books, these oldest parts of the Bible? Because they were written with us in mind. Second, we look at those oldest of books because they proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ and the, and, and the, and, and the, and the larger body of faith uh, and teaching in him. Third, every portion of Scripture, every portion, uniquely contributes to our understanding of God's plan to save the world. Every portion of Scripture that we put our attention to opens up to us a unique facet of God's plan to save the world. 
neglect one portion of Scripture, and we neglect God's revelation of what is true about him in a certain way. Neglect a portion of Scripture, and we neglect some, some truth about ourselves that we need to know about the world, about our Savior, about our mission. And so these are the reasons, I believe, that we should put our mind. Why, why listen to these dead people? Long, long, cultures long, long past, far away from us in years because of these reasons, because they were written with us in mind, because they proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and because this third reason, that in each of these books, we are added to our understanding of God and his plan for the world. A unique contribution from that book. So follow me as I'm going to take you now on an overview of 1 Samuel in preparation for our study of 2 Samuel. I'll just point out to you that 1 and 2 Samuel are actually one book. Um, the, new, the New Test, or, or rather the um, the translators, the newer translators, have broken it up into, uh, you know, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, um, it was 1 Kings and 2 Kings was, were the titles for 1 and 2 Samuel. And 1 and 2 Kings were called 3 Kings and 4 Kings because it's a history that just keeps going. Okay, but, but 1 and 2 Samuel are actually one book, but I'm going to try to just give you this overview of 1 Samuel to set the stage for us for next week. This is how I'm going to lay it out. I want you to see that 1 Samuel is, is two things, just two things. It's a book of transition, and secondly, it's a book of reversals, in parentheses, think replacements. Okay, those two things. That's what we're going to do. I'm just going to take you on this overview, and I hope to make some application to you from, from this sermon as well. This is not just a history lesson here, friends. We, we continue to worship God as we, we look to his word this morning. So, <clears throat> so as I said, I want you to see 1 Samuel as a book of what? Transition. And secondly, as a book of what? Reversals or even think replacements. Okay. All right, so let's take them one, one at a time. 1 Samuel is, first of all, a book of transition. It records a time in redemptive history. Now, when I say redemptive history, you know what I mean there? Redemption is, is buying people back from sin. That's the story of the Bible. So when we say redemptive history, we mean all of biblical history in which God is buying people back from their sin. Okay? All right, so... First um, Samuel is, first of all, a book of transition. It records a specific time in redemptive history when God reveals a huge part of his plan for the first time to his people. A huge next step for them. You see, First Samuel records the events through which God moves his people from a time of judges to a time of kings. This is a major step forward in the development of the nation of Israel, a huge advancement of the Lord's plan for them. As you look at Israel's history, you can take note of other big steps forward in the Lord's plan uh, for his people. Other times of transition where he revealed more and more of his redemptive plans. You can trace this by noticing huge and unique events he, he brought about for Israel as you read the Bible. As you do, you can see each event pushing forward God's big story of saving a people for his glory. Let's do it together here just for a moment so, so that you can get what I mean. Let's trace some of Israel's major developments. First, Genesis chapter 12. God appeared to Abraham and promised that though he and his wife were very old and barren, that he would give them a son through which a great nation would emerge and even worldwide blessing would come. So this is the promise of Israel before there was an Israel, at the very beginning. Second, Abraham's grandson Jacob would have 12 sons. 12 sons who in turn would seed a nation as their families grew. Genesis 46 counts out the 70 in, in this young family who would go into Egypt under great blessing. 
But as the nation multiplied, they were subjected to oppressive slavery. You see, the people grew and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. Exodus 1 talks about this. So much so that Pharaoh becomes afraid of them and, and, and uh, puts them into bondage. What about the first half of Exodus? There we find that the next mountaintop, the next big event of the development of the nation. We read of God sending Moses to bring plagues on Egypt and to lead Israel in an astounding rescue. Even parting the Red Sea as an escape route and then closing the waters behind them again to destroy their enemies. Exodus 20, there we read of God making a covenant with Israel giving them the Ten Commandments, describing the ways in which his peculiar covenant people were to live for him and with him. Next was the promised land. They were in the wilderness. Though the first generation refused to go in and died wandering in the wilderness under God's judgment, the second generation trusted God and conquered Canaan. This is recorded for us in the book of Joshua, a thrilling book of, of, the, of the conquest of the land. While in the land, neighboring people like the Philistines, for example, continued to attack Israel, threatening their borders. God would raise up from time to time regional judges to protect various clans and, and, and areas in, in the land. A great deal of that history, of course, is found in the book of, you guessed it, judges, right? And that's where the history of Israel had advanced when we approached 1 Samuel. Those were, if you will, the mountaintop experiences, the big events, the, the big revelations of God's plan as he advances his promises to Israel. And where we, uh, where we open, when we think of the opening of 1 Samuel, we have to think kind of the ending of the book of Judges. And this is how the end of the book of Judges reads, with this reality. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's a reality that's repeated in the book of Judges, but it's the final thought, if you will, as the book of Judges closes. But in 1 Samuel, friends, this book of transition, in 1 Samuel, a king, for the very first time, is coming. A king is coming to unify and rule Israel as a nation so they wouldn't be disjointed families and clans, but one people. It's a thrilling recounting of God leading his people forward in his grand plan, adding the role of a human king to lead them. It's a thrilling step, step forward, but it's also an unexpected one. Do you have 1 Samuel chapter 1 open? Let your eyes fall on chapter 1 and verse 10. The book opens with Hannah, a barren woman, struggling under great sadness and persecution. Did you find that verse? She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Rather quickly, gratefully, for her and for us, her situation is reversed, and the blessing of a son comes. Samuel, for which the book is named, is born to her. Two surprising events come next. Now, if you've kind of drifted in the history lesson of this, like, come on back for a minute. Two surprising events take place that surround the birth of Samuel. First, Hannah dedicates her son to the Lord's service for his entire life. She sends him to live at the temple from a boy. As soon as he's weaned, she sends him. The connections of that story to the birth of Samson are staggering if you lay them next to each other. It signals to us that Samuel was to be a significant figure in the advancement of God's redemptive plans. Not unlike Samson was a significant figure in the book of Judges, perhaps the greatest of Israel's judges. The second surprising thing is a detail in Hannah's song of praise in chapter 2. Flip over to chapter 2 there. You see it's, it's a song in the, in the first half of the, uh, of the chapter. S Hannah is singing to God, 
singing to God and about God because of what he has done. But there's something surprising in this song. It's a wonderful song, honoring God as the one who is holy and all-knowing, a creator, a savior, the one who replaces miserable situations with soaring blessings. But the end of the song takes an unexpected turn. Look down at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. How will he do this? He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What king? What anointed? We were just talking about a barren woman who was given a son, Samuel, and he's not going to be a king. Nobody has said so. So why is she singing of this coming king? Friends, Hannah's dedication. I mean, this is like moms dedicating your little one from birth for their whole life, not to live with you, but to live in the temple and minister to the Lord. That is a massive thing to do, right? So Hannah's dedication of Samuel And her singing of a coming king speaks of something greater than herself. She sees her plight and answered prayer as something far more significant than a blessed reversal just for her personally. God was about to do things for his people that no one could imagine. Samuel would anoint Israel a king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 11. This is God's own description of what he's about to do in the calling of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is a time of transition, friends. So what impact does that make on you and me? I mean, isn't that just something interesting to note about a book that has nothing to do with us? No, no. This idea of, of Hannah's story in particular, the opening of this book of transitions, I would just say this. Who knows how God is using your trials to bring about the advancement and good of his people. You see, he, the Lord personally interacted with Hannah, relieving her of her great distress, answering her prayer, bringing the blessing that she longed for. But look at how it's intertwined in the advancement of God's people. Who knows what God might do in this church through his interaction with you in a trial. Well, friends, don't be so self-focused to think that, that God answers your prayers in isolation, that he gives you trials that have only to do with you. We have to think of how God is advancing his story through all of our stories. It's the way the, the, the gospel reaches the nations, friends. Okay. I said that this was a thrilling moment in Israel's history, but also a surprising one. Here's another way it's both thrilling and surprising. Anyone who knew their Hebrew Bible at this time in history would not have been surprised at the notion that God would anoint a king over Israel. I mean, we read the Bible and we're like, whoa, a king! But Faithful Jews who knew the Hebrew scriptures, it would not have been a surprise to them this concept of God anointing a king over his people. Deuteronomy 17 predicted that he would do just that. Back in the law, back in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote for the people. Deuteronomy 17 speaks of God putting a king over his people, but it would be an exemplary king. It would would be a king not motivated by making himself rich and advancing himself, but by his fear of the Lord. That's what would motivate him. He was, in fact, to devote himself to God's word and, and, and serve the people as an example of obedience to God. In fact, 
the, the Psalms often speak of a king in this way. So the idea that at long last God would install a king was really quite thrilling, if you think of it. It was God doing what he had said he would do. But the surprising disappointment of what actually happens in 1 Samuel, particularly in chapter 8, is that the people rebel against God, demanding a king with the wrong motive. Look over at chapter 8 now. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 5, wouldn't you love for the people you serve to approach you with this sentiment? Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So not surprising that God anoints a king over Israel, but certainly surprising and disappointing that the people in demanding a king actually reject God. They wanted a king like the pagan nations around them. That kind of king. God shows them their sin by giving them the kind of king they asked for. One that looked big and strong on the outside, but did not possess a humble heart for obeying the Lord's commands. God gave them, in a word, Saul. God gave them King Saul as their first king, whose selfish rage and idolatrous need to be praised would be a sufficient rebuke to the people for foolishly trusting in man's wisdom in an approach for a king. But we also see that God is merciful even when his people sin against him. Aren't you glad God's like that? God's spirit comes upon Saul in chapter 10 and again in chapter 11 when he was empowered to, for the first time, unify the nation against the Ammonites in a great victory. How does this have anything to do with us? I hope you started to pick up some, of, uh, some, of, some applications in your mind, even as I'm describing this book. I have two at this point. First, be careful not to long for the kind of resources that make God obsolete in your life. I mean, I'll, take, I'll take Vaughn's request as an example, a positive example. He wasn't asking for some kind of success in the way we measure businesses or something like that. He was asking for spiritual resource that only comes as we ask God for it. That, that, that would be the right way for God's people to, to approach uh, 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 our needs, right? But so oftentimes, our minds cycle into the ways in which the world thinks uh, it, it, people are strong and successful. So, so don't wish that God will give you such resource that you'll never need to talk to him again. Don't, don't ask that God for such success and power and money and whatever, friends, so that you'll never need to turn to him on a daily basis to provide for you what you need. Be careful, friends. We can slip into that. Second, praise God for the countless mercies he's handed out even when we approach him with wrong motives. Even when we, we come to him with, with fleshly desires, he doesn't stonewall us. He continues to grant mercies to us. Praise God for that. That is, a, that is an occasion for worship, friends. Right? All right. First and Second Samuel is a book of transition, as I said. From the time of judges to the time of kings. But consider this, that the very idea of transition, the very idea of transition, speaks of God's revelation to his people taking place progressively. That is, not all at once. Now, now I want you to hear this. This is such an important point. It sounds very heady. 
But I'm saying this idea that we're describing 1 Samuel as a time of transition from one thing to another thing, from, from these truths, this, this part of God's plan, and some more is being revealed and added, just the concept uh, that, that there are times of transition in, in, in redemptive history, right? It, it, it speaks to God revealing truth to us a little at a time, over time. Progressive revelation like this demonstrates that God has perfect knowledge of a plan that's perfect for us, but we can't handle it all in one lump. He has to take his limited creatures and build into their psyche down through the generations the different parts of his plans so that when Christ comes, we get it. When Christ comes, we see he is the culmination. There's, there's no king before, before 1 Samuel. And now the people are starting to learn the bad things about a king. He's going to demand things. He's gonna, he's, he's, there's a whole, in chapter 8, there's this whole huge section in which Samuel says, well, let me just cut it straight to you. If you want a king like this, he's going to take. And he's going to take. And he's going to take. And he's going to take. Right? And then there's going to be We'll get to this in a moment. But then there's going to be another kind of a king. And this concept, all of these sort of you know, unique contributions to God's plan is being gifted to his people over time. Because we can't handle it all in one whack. And so, so, so it's God's goodness to us that he gives his truth progressively. That he reveals a little bit of his plan, a little bit more of his plan, a little bit more of his plan. And, and you, know what, you know what we see in this, in, in this book? We see him do it in microcosm, in a, in a little limited example. Flip over to chapter 16. Even his faithful prophet, his, his new priest in Samuel. Chapter 16 is about, God says, listen, I'm done with Saul, go find David. He just doesn't say that. He says, go find the king, I'm going to show you. Right? <clears throat> And this is in chapter 16. And if you look at verse 6, when they came, that is Jesse and his sons, not David yet, but the other brothers, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And, but, but God corrects him. He, he, he says to him, I want you to see the kind of king that Israel needs. I want you to see the way I see. And so he corrects him in the next verse. Do you see it there? But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Why? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so he's teaching his prophet this very thing that he teaches that he teaches his people as he progressively reveals the scriptures. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Because he's going to have one son after another son of Jesse paraded in front of him. One at a time. Think about this. Think about this lesson. Bake it into your conscience that God doesn't pick kings the way the world picks kings. Don't look at the outside. I look at the inside, at the heart. Right? And so this very thing is happening to us just as we consider what the, what the notion of transition is. This progressive receiving of truth is one way to describe discipleship. I mean, when you came to Christ, you didn't, you didn't come to learn all of it all at once, did you? Somebody had to take you by the hand and teach you the, the basics of Christianity and little by little understand who God is and know, wow, he's much bigger than that. And, and who is Christ? And no, he's, he's far more of a savior than that. And what are God's plans for his people? Oh, they're way bigger than that. Little by little, as you uh, learn more and more truth about our glorious God in the Bible. Just as the scriptures have come to God's people progressively, one book, then another. Building on the one that comes before. Advancing the story of redemption. So too, God invites us to move forward in our relationship with him. To grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to use Peter's terms. And so we are called to grow in our understanding of who God is. Our creator and covenant keeper. 
our deliverer and inheritance giver and judge and king. What kind of a disciple are you? Are you growing in your understanding of who God is? Are you putting yourself under the sound of the preaching? Are you reading the Bible for yourself? Are you seeking out people who are farther down the road of maturity than you are and asking them to disciple you? Friends, this is God's call on his people, that we would, that we would grow in our faith, devoting ourselves more and more to him as we learn more and more about him in the word. Progressively receiving God's truth over time, this also does another thing. It's discipleship too. But, but as, we are, uh, uh, as we get discipled, as we receive his truth more and more, it also builds in us a humble willingness to change what we believe when we're confronted with something else in the word. Are you that kind of person? Do you hold your positions lightly? Are you willing to let the word of God change you, persuade you of of what is, is, is true, even if it contradicts what you have long held? I mean, think about this. Israel thought they knew what kind of leader they needed. They demanded it of God. First Samuel taught them that they need a man after God's own heart, not a king who necessarily looks like the ones the other nations had. And so they had to change what they firmly believed. What about the Jews of the first century? They thought they knew what a Messiah would look like, didn't they? I mean, we, re- we run into this misunderstanding again and again and again in the Gospels. No one understood that he had to be denied and to suffer and die first in order to save and lead his people. No one understood that until he taught them, until God revealed more of his plan to them in Christ. I'm studying now to teach soon the book of Revelation. It is the book that people ask me all the time, when am I going to preach it? What's your motivation for me preaching the book of Revelation? So that your long-held beliefs about the end times would be, in fact, bolstered? So that you get an attaboy? Friends, be careful. Be willing to hold your positions lightly as the Word of God is progressively revealed to you, as God matures you and disciples you. Be willing to change your positions if if you're convinced by the Word of God. All right, that leads me to the second kind of book 1 Samuel is. First, it was a book of what? Transition, right? the time of, of, of judges to the time of kings. And then we talked a little bit also about just this idea of transition and, and, the, and the beauty of God's progressive revelation. Secondly, not only is it a book of transition, it's also a book of, did you remember? Reversals, or even think replacements. Listen to a, well, let's just look at Hannah's song there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's a beautiful song. And someone's took the clock down, so I don't know where I'm at time-wise. So let's just read it. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now listen to all these reversals, friends. All these replacements. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Do you get the point? 
She's singing of all these blessed reversals that the Lord brings about, even replacements. Two areas of replacements in particular we need to pay attention to in 1 Samuel is this. The replacement of one spiritual leader for another and the replacement of one king for another. Let's start with that area of spiritual leaders. Men who are supposed to bring spiritual light to Israel. Specifically a priest, but also the idea of a prophet. Priests and prophets have similar roles in Israel. Sometimes a person shares both of those roles, as in Samuel. Not only does 1 Samuel open with Israel not having a king. Remember I said that was the last verse in Judges? At this time, there was no king in Israel. That's what we read as Judges closes. But that's only the first part of the verse. The second part says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that, friends, speaks of a, of a time of spiritual immaturity at the least, and perhaps even downright spiritual darkness. Eli is the high priest in chapter 1, and he is a great example of the wrong kind of priest. Let me just recount for you in the opening chapters how Eli is described. In chapter 1 and verse 14, you can, you can let your eyes fall there if you're at the beginning still. You were in 2, flip back one page. Eli is portrayed in that verse as not recognizing a woman pouring out her soul in prayer to the Lord. In fact, mistaking someone in despair, crying out to the Lord as a drunken woman. That's, how, that, that's the first thing we know of Eli. Second, in chapter 2, he allows his sons, we learn, to continue to serve as priests while they steal from the Lord's offerings, even raping women who were serving at the tabernacle. We read of that in the middle of chapter 2. Eli was such a spiritual stalwart that he allowed his sons to do these things. And judgment comes as a result. Finally, it takes Eli multiple times. It's painful to read in chapter 3. Multiple times the Lord calls out to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel! And Samuel thinks it's Eli calling him and runs down and wakes him up in the middle of the night. And he goes, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Now this is the very pattern in which God calls his prophets it's, how, it's the pattern in which he called Moses. Surely the high priest of Israel would recognize such a pattern. It takes three times for Eli to finally go, uh, it must be the Lord. Like, we're there way before he's there, right? And even his physical description, the physical description of Eli that, that, that is given to us in Samuel symbolizes his spiritual blindness. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, he was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Turn the page one more chapter, and he's completely blind. And I believe that is a representation of his spiritual darkness, his spiritual inability to lead the people. But that's not where the story stops. This is a book of what? Replacements. Reversals. And so we also then read of the Lord replacing Eli and his wicked sons with Samuel. Under Eli, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we read that the word of the Lord was rare. That's the opening of chapter 3. But God would not allow the spiritual darkness to persist among his people. And so he began to replace Eli with Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19. I said the beginning of that chapter said, In those days under Eli the word of the Lord was rare. Verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that is from north to south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Keep reading, it says, the word of the Lord reached all Israel. What's that got to do with you and me? 
Think about it. God is for his people. He wants them to have light. He wants them to have truth. He wants us to live and live abundantly. He wants us to grow and mature and increase in our joy in him. The Lord desires to lead, uh, uh, lead us to an understanding of him in his word. And so he brings people capable of that. He gifts people, calls them, and sends them. In the New Testament, he gifts men and women in appropriate context in the home, in the church, and even out in the world through evangelism to lead people to know Christ by embracing his message of love and forgiveness and also to, to take Christians and help them grow in their relationship with him. Praise God for his unwillingness to let the wrong kind of leaders persist in positions of influence. And in one, in one way, it's such a tragedy in recent years to learn of all of these wicked men being taken out of leadership positions in God's truth. But in another way, we should be rejoicing. Because God does not let men like that persist. He will eventually take them out and replace them with faithful men. Praise God. All of us have been under the teaching of faithful men. Praise God for that. He's for us. He won't let us just, just languish in spiritual darkness. So we see God replacing Israel's spiritual leader from, from Eli and his sons to Samuel. But we also see another major replacement in 1 Samuel, and that in the case of the king. In chapter 8, as I've already said, the Lord told Samuel to give the people the wrong kind of king because that's what they were demanding. God said to give them what they asked for, but that wouldn't last either. Just like, just like the ministry, if you could call it that, of Eli wouldn't last, so too the reign of Saul would not last because God would not allow his people to have a king who disobeyed the Lord and serve himself and have this massively long reign. In chapter 13, Samuel had told Saul to wait for him to come to Gilgal. Samuel the prophet said, I'm coming. Before you go up to battle against the Philistines, wait. I'm going to come and offer a sacrifice. Samuel was the high priest at this point. But Saul grew impatient and offered the sacrifice himself. He sinned against the Lord. Disobeyed his command through his prophet. And so the Lord judged Saul through his prophet. Listen now, 1 Samuel 13. Flip over there if you'd like. Two verses, 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. There would have been a dynasty, you see. Saul's sons would have succeeded him on the throne. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The Lord would not allow Saul's line to continue on the throne because of his unfaithfulness. The Lord would not allow a king like that to rule over his people a king who thought his way was better than the Lord's. Chapter 15 is a sequel to chapter 13. It will have even more devastating consequences for Saul. Make your way over to 15 there. The Lord had ordered Saul at the beginning of the chapter to slaughter all of the Amalekites, all of the people and all of their animals without exception. And you guessed it. Saul didn't do that. Instead of that, Saul decided to spare the king. And also he spared all of the animals that were in good shape. Then he built a statue to honor himself, of course. And Samuel just misses him as he's polishing up the statue to himself. But when he catches him, here's Samuel's message to Saul. Verse 26. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
God will not allow His people to be led by people like that. Not for long. So what's the application to us? Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And confronting sin is an act of love. Confronting sin is an act of love. It's an act of love toward the sinner and an act of love towards those who that sinner has influence over. God's removal of a king who refused to honor his name and obey his commands was good and right. And we have to get this. God's people have to get this. We have to develop in our minds and hearts that disciplining unrepentant sin is an act of love that God models for us in removing Saul as king. It's also seen. It's also seen in God's pouring out his wrath on his son. I said sin has consequences. Unrepentant sin needs to be removed from God's people. Also, sin has consequences. It results in God's wrath being poured out on his son for the sins of his people. Ignoring sin is not love. Had God ignored our sins and failed to send Jesus to bear our wrath, that would be certainly no act of love. But as it is, we know what love looks like. Because God in Christ first loved us. To ignore sin is cowardice and foolish. Praise God, he confronts sin head on. We see it throughout the scriptures and we see it certainly in 1 Samuel. And so sinners can be saved. And justice will be done under his rule. Yes, this is a book of replacements. And of course, David would be Saul's replacement. He would be the Lord's choice of king for Israel. Saul's own servants testified that the Lord was with him in 1 Samuel 16, 18. Saul's own servants said, God's with David. And he was right. They were right. When Saul and all his men were terrified of Goliath, you can read about that in chapter 17, verses 11 and 24, Saul and all of his mighty men were terrified of Goliath. When that happened, God enabled David to deliver Israel from the Philistine champion. David led Israel to victory again and again. Songs were sung of how he increased and Saul decreased. Hear the songs of the women of Israel in 1 Samuel 18.7. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Even when, when he was forced to flee Israel, because Saul wanted David dead. He tricked the Philistines to think that he would fight for them. But all the while, he was still God's anointed. Even as the Philistine king would send him out to, to, to kill the Israelites to advance the Philistines, he would really kill the other people and save Israel again and again and again. This is what a good king does, always fighting for his people, always having the heartbeat of God. You see that in 1 Samuel chapter 27 if you want to see that account. And astoundingly, David also put God's honor over his own life. Many, many times. He, re, he, would, he would have the opportunity to kill Saul who was, who, who was bent on destroying him. It, it, was, it would have been so easy in chapter 24 and tw chapter 26, but David refused to lift a hand against Saul as long as he was the king that God had put over Israel. He honored God above himself. In replacing Saul with David, God shows us a pattern. Shows us a pattern. Remember that progressive uh, revelation idea? He gives us a little bit more of his plan here. He shows us this pattern. He shows us what we should desire in a king. But as we move into 2 Kings, we will eventually see that David bears the same sin problem we all have. And so David is shown to not be the king that will ultimately save us from, from our enemies of sin and death. And yet, and yet, it is through the story of David that God makes a covenant promise 
This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 now, verse 12. God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about David's greatest son, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the king who would come and fulfill that covenant promise as well as the promises made to Abraham that I spoke of earlier. Though Christ is the eternal Son of the Father, He humbled Himself, took on, on flesh, and, and was born in the lineage of both Abraham and David. He would receive the great name promised to Abraham and, and bring eternal blessing to the world by dying for sinners and raising back to life. He would defeat sin and death forever and bring forgiveness and eternal life to all in the world. All in the world who would turn to him in faith. And that means you. If you have not yet turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, all of the promises of God from the oldest books to the newest books, all of them proclaim Jesus as Savior. You need to turn to him in faith. Or you will have to bear his wrath for your sins yourself. That will be a, a terrible eternity. But that need not be your future. Because Jesus already took the wrath of God on himself when he died on a cross for you, if you'll turn and believe. May this be that day. What about the promises to David? right here in 2 Samuel 7, as I read, well, Jesus would fulfill them as well. He would, he would be granted the eternal throne of David in heaven where he rules and reigns even this moment, interceding for his people and commanding that all that comes to pass will be for their good. Well, I hope that sets the stage of why we need to look at the stories of all these dead people long ago. This story, this book, this book of transition and this book of replacements, it was written with us in mind. It was written so that we might see Jesus Christ in these pages. And it was written so that we might have yet another unique facet of God's love for his people and his plans to redeem sinners down through the ages. Take just a few moments and just let that, all those glorious truths wash over you. Perhaps God is calling you to respond in some way today. Maybe even respond in faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time.